What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Do I have to wear the helmet? Uh, yeah, definitely very important to wear the helmet. Um, you know, these things look like big toys, but uh, at the end of the day, if you hit anything too fast and too straight on, this thing can flip right the over. Well, I'm going to die anyway. That's Caitlin Scheel in the new film, She Dies Tomorrow. Comes from director Amy Simitz, and it's a movie that was made well before the COVID-19 pandemic, but wow, does it tap right into all of this year's anxieties. It really does. Along with a review of She Dies Tomorrow, we've got recommendations for several new films, Boys State, I Used to Go Here, and Beyonce's Black is King. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So if you're the kind of person who used to stay on top of new releases, maybe you saw two or four or even more new movies every month, this new paradigm that has new releases popping up on various platforms with little or no warning can be frustrating, probably. Yeah. It is hard for us even, Josh, to keep up with, isn't it? Miss the days of the studio release calendar. That was nice. <laughs> Never thought we'd say that. That being said, while the world waits for major titles like Tenet or Mulan, there are Smaller films being released all the time, every week, and later in the show, we're going to get to a few of them. First, though, our review of a movie that had its own unique release, playing drive-in theaters for a week before becoming available on demand on August 7. Hi. How's the new house? Good. Can you come over? Uh, I can't. Are you okay? I... I am going to die tomorrow. What is going on? There is no tomorrow for me. All right, listen, Amy, I'm really freaking out right now. I feel like you put this idea of dying in my head. Can, can you just call me back? Adam, as the title suggests, She Dies Tomorrow is about death. This is the second feature from writer-director Amy Simons. She's probably also familiar to cinephiles as an actor in the likes of Upstream Color and Wild Nights with Emily. And here, she is specifically focusing on characters who come into, let's just say, a heightened awareness of their mortality. Caitlin Scheel plays Amy, a woman in the wake of a breakup, who we watch in the opening section of the movie, spending a listless, lonely night trying to unpack in her new home. At one point in the evening, a pulsing blue and red strobe light effect seemingly invades the space, casting Amy under a spell. When she comes out of it, she calls a friend, played by Jane Addams, and tells her, I'm going to die tomorrow. Now, that's a line, or at least a variation on it, that characters might speak in many of your favorite films, Adam. Fair to say, mortality is a pet theme of yours. Mm -hmm. You and Maddie did a top five movies about mortality list back in 2008. All that jazz, Wild Strawberries, those films were among your choices. So I couldn't help wonder, after watching She Dies Tomorrow, if you found the movie satisfying in the way it explicitly presents and plays with the idea of our impending deaths, does it deserve retroactive consideration for a top five list of movies about mortality? Hmm. In terms of subject matter and the way it's explored, 
regardless of my personal reaction to it, you'd absolutely have to consider it for such a top five. And I think about Jane Addams' character in the movie. She's a friend of Caitlin Shields' Amy. And this is a film where almost every character in the movie, not all, but almost every character has the name of the actor portraying them, just in case you were wondering whether or not there was meant to be any crossover into the personal lives of this cast and the filmmakers. Caitlin Scheel is playing Amy, right? Named Mm -hmm. after, presumably, Amy Simons. And whenever Jane is confronted by dubious people, when she starts her spiel about how she too is sure she's going to die tomorrow. She has the habit of trying to express what she's feeling, that certainty, with examples, right? There's multiple times where she says things like, it's like when you're going for a walk and something happens. And I'm going to follow her lead here, Josh, to start. Every single one of us knows we're going to die, right? We walk around with that knowledge on some level every day. But that doesn't carry the same terror with it as those times when it does really hit you. For whatever reason, you're just laying in bed at night. Maybe it started back when you were in college or before that, or it still happens now. For whatever reason, it just hits you. You're like, oh God, someday I'm going to cease to exist. And you really try to reckon with that for a minute or two if you can. The reality is, of course, you couldn't function day to day with that terror. Hmm. And I'm going to give you a personal example. Both my dad and his dad died before they were 60, around the same age. So throughout my life, as my dad did, I've consistently joked about having a similar expiration date. And that is a joke when you're 15 Mm -hmm. or when you're 25. And honestly, looking at 60, even when you're 35, it's still kind of funny. But when you're about to turn 45, (laughs) it's not funny anymore. And there are times where that terror is really intense and it can be momentarily paralyzing. All you can do is dismiss it and move on with your day because, again, you couldn't function carrying around that terror. She Dies Tomorrow presents a scenario where dismissing it just isn't an option. Carrying the terror is the only choice you have. And that is a really heavy, really unsettling space to exist in, even as a viewer, even who who isn't in the world that these characters inhabit. The experience of it is one that is deeply unsettling. And you mentioned Wild Strawberries, one of my favorite movies about mortality. I think the ultimate cinematic touchstone for death for me and for a lot of people is Bergman. And I think starting there actually is a really good place to start with this movie in terms of just trying to wrap your head around it, because it's it's out there. I think that's fair to say. And if you took the overwhelming dread and the feeling of futility that Bergman's characters often exhibit. I'm thinking primarily of his trilogy that includes Winter Light and The Silence here, but then added in the absurdity and the eeriness of David Lynch. I'm thinking a lot of the score and the sound design of Twin Peaks, but then had that that horror element. And to go with a more contemporary comparison, it's hard not to think about a movie like David Robert Mitchell's It Follows when you watch this film, but I'm also thinking a lot, or I was as I was watching the movie, about Peter Strickland and his Barbarian sound studio and the Duke of Burgundy and the use of color, especially. You touched on it, Josh, with those, those lights, the red and blue, and the effect that that has on these characters and us as viewers. That use of color especially does reflect and influence the, the psychological state of the people we're watching on screen. So I bring those up again, to try to wrap my head around this movie, if you like those films and haven't seen this one yet, then 
maybe it's one to seek out. If you like She Dies Tomorrow and haven't seen some of the other titles I mentioned, then maybe those are some good blind spots to fill in. But again, just to try to ground this conversation about a movie that is fundamentally about characters who are completely or coming completely ungrounded, I bring those other titles up. And I don't think it ever feels derivative. I would say to Simons' credit that she can make something that has all of those elements, but it does still feel uniquely hers. And I do so appreciate the craft of this film, the very tricky performances, and definitely the boldness of the experiment. Now, the question is, does it amount to more than that experiment? Mm -hmm. A cinematic, sensory exercise in portraying existential dread in a heightened way that does, as I suggested, reflect what I imagine is a universal human experience. I'm I'm not sure it does. And okay. and maybe that experiment should be enough. I guess I'm curious, was it enough for you? Yeah, that's the crucial question for this film that that I do want to get to. And the potential influences, I think you're right. It's almost like this is this is a movie with the themes and concerns of Bergman, but the the style of of sci-fi and horror. And I think that's what that's what lends it its unique sensibility, right? Is combining those sorts of things. And I think for the most part, it stays in its sci-fi lane and sticks to this without, you know, explaining exactly what is happening here. It it sticks to this scenario, this contagious anxiety, I guess we could call it. Um, and then cleverly, that also allows the movie to become many other things. It can stand as a metaphor for things beyond just, you know, thinking about our mortality. I think there's a lot here about the nature of depression, um, uh, just the contagiousness of general anxiety. That's where mm-hmm. some of the resonance for what we're living through in 2020 comes in. And I think there's a lot here about loneliness, too, sort of the existential anxiety of loneliness. So so there is a lot that this movie could be. I think it does want to be essentially, and this brings us back to the craft question, which I appreciated as well. It wants to be this harrowing experience of exactly what you described when you can't shake those middle of the night terrors about mortality, right? Because a lot of the times whenever those do arise, whether it is just because of our racing minds in the middle of the night, whether it is because of an older family member um, aging and makes us think about when we'll be at that point in our lives, we can get rid of that. Some of us maybe get rid of it quicker than others, but we can distract ourselves with something else. Um, We can rationalize it away. Um, This movie wants us to, as you said, experience what the characters are experiencing when that feeling cannot go away. Um, And it uses the central conceit to do that. I think it's very effective in communicating how the characters feel that, but it sounds like I might be with you in that I never feel the terror fully myself. And I get the sense that the movie really wants us to. And and some of this has to do with the shifting perspectives I wanted to talk about that the movie mm-hmm. does offer because it's definitely aligned at the beginning with Amy, the Caitlin Shield character, her perspective. The first shot is her a close-up of her eye, right? And so we are seeing what she's seeing eventually and experiencing this night alone through her mind. But then there are other moments where the movie and the score 
signifies this, jumps out of her head. When we're in her head, there's this dreamy atmospheric music, this heightened experience. When we're out of her head, I think of the moment when she's drunk driving. Um, at first, we see her and hear that music, and we see how she sees this is almost like a spiritual experience. But then the music cuts, and we get the camera from behind her head, from the back seat, and it's just kind of sad and desperate. There's another perspective we get, though, Adam, and that is the perspective of this light source itself. The first time that Amy comes under this light spell, the camera is looking at her as she approaches. She's blurry and indistinct, and eventually she comes closer, and she looks right into the camera. And in that moment, we're this source of despair, right? That's our perspective. Um, and I felt all of those things, but I never had the... the in, infectiousness infect me as a viewer. And I mm -hmm. think the movie with those strobe lights, with the music really wants us to feel like that. I still felt at the end of the film that I was an outside witness to what was happening. Um, I wasn't, a, I don't know if victim is the right word to use, but, but I wasn't really a victim. And so it did leave me at the end of the movie as much as I did appreciate it in the ways you're describing um, sort of as an experiment, as a successful one. It was more of a conversation starter than my own metaphysical experience. And that's yeah. a lot That's a lot to ask of a film. That's a mm -hmm. high bar, right? Like we're talking mm -hmm. about Bergman and Tarkovsky here. <laughs> so, so the movie sets a high bar for itself. And if I, if I feel like I'm experiencing that alongside a film like Solaris, say, um, here I'm almost witnessing the movie's characters experience it. So there, it's yeah. one level of remove that I had with She Dies Tomorrow. Yeah. I feel exactly the same way, and I'll try to explain why here in a second, but I did want to second your astute point about the camera and the use of perspective here. There is always this sense of us observing, especially Amy. We assume we're seeing something from her point of view, and then there's a scene, for example, where we've just watched her looking at something. We then cut to the interior of a room, and as the camera starts to tilt up, we assume we're aligned with Amy's point of view only to find that she's actually submerged in the yeah. dark of the doorway. Yeah. And she, she's kind of just slowly emerging into the frame and it's, it's creepy anyway, just because you barely see this still figure in the dark all of a sudden, but it is also disconcerting because you think you are in her head and then all of a sudden you find that you are not. Mm -hmm. And so there are those kind of abrupt uses of the camera of editing that keep us feeling very disconcerted throughout. Think about how many times Simon's cuts from a very intense, heavy situation. Someone might even be midline expressing something and we just cut right out of it to something that's just every day. Yeah. You know, so there are those examples throughout that are really effective. But I think part of my disconnect and you were getting at it in terms of talking about the red and blue light and what the characters and what the actors are going through. Part of my disconnect, I think, is that this is a movie that very much, I think you'd agree, wants to cast a spell mm -hmm. on you. And that's the sound design. That's the use of the lighting. It's the perspective and point of view. It's all those elements coming together. Some of these different genre elements even coming together. But that spell can be broken, or it at least was here for me. And I do want to get to a question, which is how funny ultimately you felt the movie was. Huh. Because watching it, there became a point where I started to feel a little bit like I was watching M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening all over again, where hmm. people... 
people similarly feel a compulsion to death, only, of course, they then actually take their own lives rather than just being overwhelmed with the feeling. But maybe the happening crossed with an SNL skit. And this is really probably a terrible example, but it's the only it's the only one I can think of. I don't know if you ever saw the one where Adam Sandler hosted a year or two ago and they did a bit where it was the Sandler family reunion and the guy comes up to give him his beer and says, hey, how do you come up with all your characters? And Sandler basically says, "Ah, you know, I guess they just come to me. But then as we go through the party and he meets each different relative that he hasn't seen in a while, the whole joke is we realize that they behave exactly like one of his famous movie or SNL characters. So he's, okay. he's just been cribbing from his life. Right. He had uncles that acted just like that, and he just imitated them, and that's how you get Adam Sandler. But the experience of watching that skit is a matter of anticipating who we're going to see next and how they'll behave. And about the time we got to Chris Messina as the brother mm-hmm. to Jane Adams' character— all I'm really focused on as he's as he's standing there in his kitchen and we get that close up, you know, the red and blue light's going to come and you're thinking, oh, it's going to happen. Here it comes. We get the score cue. We get the colors. We get him looking off into the distance and we know that he's experiencing some kind of vision of his death or whatever those colors signify. I'm not thinking about in that moment what the character is experiencing, honestly, Josh, or the ramifications of it. I'm thinking about Chris Messina, the actor in that moment. I'm thinking about, oh, what is his variation on this same thing I've seen three or four other characters do going to be? It's almost like, oh, it's acting school time. You know, it's someone is behind the camera saying, "Okay, Chris, you're feeling confused and you're angry. And you're sad and now you're stunned and the full weight of your mortality is just crushing down on you. Show it to me. Give it to me. So how does an actor tilt his head? What does he do with his breathing? What does he do with his eyes? Are they are they twitchy or are they still like that's that's what I was experiencing as a viewer. I was just watching Chris Messina, the actor. And from then on, I was almost only connected to what the actors, not Hmm. the characters were doing and where it got legitimately hysterical. And I'll telling you i think simons is in on the joke well that's what i was going to ask i you. do i think she is and here's here's my evidence is there's a scene where and i'll just say i kind of won't spoil the surprise i guess of the actor who plays the role but jane adams character again goes to see a doctor and she's expressing of course what's on her mind about her impending death and we're watching the doctor and he's skeptical And he's dismissing everything she's saying. And so then you're watching it. It's the Adam Sandler bit. You're going, okay, when's it going to hit? When's it going to come? Here it is. And he starts to say, it's not really my specialty. I could refer you. And he says, refer you. And he stops mid-sentence. And he sighs with his deep sigh. And he looks away. And it's this look on his face and this little maneuver with his mouth that suggests, wow, I've really got an upset stomach right now, or I've got a bad case of the you're going to dies. <laughs> and, and we, of course, know that it's the you're going to dies. And that dread music, that score that comes up every time the lights, often when the lights cue as well, it comes in just for a moment. And as soon as he composes himself and he tries to sound like a doctor again, that's the moment the music actually stops. So in that 
in that scene and with hmm. that use of music there, it's like, okay, Simons absolutely knows what she's doing. She knows that we're waiting for that to happen to him and we're watching that very closely as a viewer. And so when when he sort of feels the weight of it for a second, the music comes in. It's like it's like the shark is appearing in Jaws and you get the danda. But then as soon as the shark goes away, you take it away. That's what happens there in that scene. I really do think she's playing with us there in a pretty clever way. And that was another thing I was wrestling with throughout, though, was, OK, she's winking at us. But how much of this is supposed to be actually intentionally funny? How much mm-hmm. of it is unintentionally so? And I recognize saying all of that, that part of the beauty of this film ultimately is everyone having a different personal experience with it and they're not being one right way to watch this movie. But the humor was something that really did stand out to me. Did you feel that way at all? Well, I can't say I expected the happening and Adam Sandler skits to come up in this review. So I contain multitudes. So, so maybe um, that's my way of saying no. I I thought this. Uh, I took this. deadly serious throughout um i'm trying to think now as you're describing it and even that scene in particular how it might work um there there is one sequence that did strike me as tiptoeing towards camp which for me would mean unintentionally funny Mm -hmm. and without giving it away i'll just say there is a i'm going to die tomorrow montage um and it's it's kind of it's not what you're talking about where we're waiting for that buildup and waiting for the moment to come. It's like we get three or yeah. four right in a row. Right. And that's not did... the ATV at night montage when she rents an all-terrain vehicle no, in no, the no. desert it's, at night. It's the it's that's when I started to feel like, okay, um, you know, this is pushing this button, this particular button pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And that and I think that's one of the tools, you know, to to get to immerse us in the experience that these characters are having. The movie has basic tools. And we've talked a lot about a lot of them, the lighting, the music, the editing. One of the tools is that declarative statement. I'm going to die tomorrow. We hear it so many times. And I think it does either it lose, begins to lose its power or it's just not enough to infect me. It never infected me. And, and I got to say, going back to the feeling that this movie wants me to be infected, I don't know what putting in those sort of humorous tweaks would do to help that, which makes me feel like um, the comedy might not be intentional, whatever comedy someone might find in this, because I really do think that would undercut mm-hmm. um, a lot of what a lot of like the very serious things this movie is concerned with. Those things I was talking about, depression, loneliness, anxiety, um, the mo- another movie that came to mind for me was Annihilation, um, the Alex Garland picture, which touches on some of these themes as well and is also you know on one level a work of science fiction but also very psychologically rooted um and so for me i can't say it struck me as as funny while watching it that one moment again that veered toward camp stood out to me um i think that would undercut what the film is trying to do so i don't know i don't know if if and it, it did In my case, Josh, it did undercut ultimately that oppressive feeling of dread that no one really as a viewer probably wants to sit through. But that is the fundamental drive, it seems, of this film. It is to immerse you in that 
overwhelming experience. And then there were all these times where I was drawn out of that. And that scene at the hospital with the doctor was a very clear example of that for me. I'm just thinking about that scene in particular. And that's the one where particularly the loneliness aspect um, yeah. came out to me. I, I think Jane even says something about the, him being so handsome. handsome. Yeah. Um, and there has been a scene with Chris Messina playing Jane's brother, who Jane goes to his house with his wife. And clearly Jane and the, the wife, the sister-in-law, do not get along at all. And there's um, a dichotomy there between Messina's, you know, domestic tranquility he supposedly has and Jane's loneliness. Jane is an mm -hmm. artist. When we see her, she lives alone. She works in her basement on her art. Um, and so I think there is something going on there about the loneliness that for me, the doctor scene, that's kind of what that was about. Because there's a very strange interaction with them. Uh, I don't want to spoil Jane and the doctor as well. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, it's doing what the movie does does well, I think, is, is blurring a lot of these lines between what's pure sci-fi speculation, what is basic human experience that we can recognize and share and mm -hmm. how does it relate to these characters who are at the same time trying to wrestle with the notion of their mortality now that it's right here in their face so um so yeah the the humor element i had i'm gonna i'm gonna say not intentional hmm. well i would point to that scene and honestly the music is so subtle there that it could be easily missed but i promise if most people had a chance to watch it and rewind that scene I think they would see the humor in it, in that score just popping up for half a second and then all of a sudden going away. That's the filmmaker's hand. They're very clearly at work kind, sure. of, kind of needling us a little bit. At I the very felt, least, teasing us with teasing, with the, us teasing us about the pattern that's been established. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I can see that for recognizing sure. Recognizing that we as viewers by this point have right. to recognize the pattern. Yeah. So I, I think you're right, though, about the loneliness, and that's the personal part of interpreting this film what does the metaphor mean just like with it follows the big debate around that movie afterwards was okay well it's as if it's a sexually transmitted disease we got that but it ultimately leads to death so what is that really representing and here it's all about death and it's so on the nose but is it meant to represent other things not only loneliness but alcoholism and battling addiction and you talked about relationships and loneliness and i do think that wherever you come down on this film, whatever you think it is ultimately getting at, or whether the brilliance of it is that it's about all of those things or can be, two other really universal aspects of the human experience are covered by the film and portrayed in what happens to each of these characters once they are imbued with this overwhelming sense of their mortality. And one of those is they feel immediately the need to express it. Right. So I think that gets back to almost this this meta narrative element where you realize that this is probably Amy Simons and her way of dealing with this dread is making a film like this that allows her to express all of these different feelings, but including the recognition of her own mortality. We as humans feel compelled to be miserable, I suppose, in knowing that we're going to die someday. But then. We have to share it. We can't just keep it to ourselves. And that's exactly why this spreads in this film. The other thing that's related directly to that is, of course, that once you have been infected with this, not only do you want to share it with other people, you want to express it, but you also want to feel it with them. You want to experience it together. We see multiple times where people then feel the need to go be around others, right? Like 
if we're all in this together, then I actually need to spend my final moments with other people, whether they're people I'm close to and I love or people that I don't know at all. And there's a third aspect, I suppose, I would throw in that I think Simons is playing with here, which is the idea that if we all came to terms with our mortality as clearly and as troublingly, I suppose, as every character in this movie does, then we would actually become more honest people. We wouldn't be lying to ourselves anymore. And it's almost as if the movie is saying every day, all we're doing is trying to deny this fundamental reality of being human. And maybe that's why we partly lie to each other so much is because we're in a constant state of lying to ourselves. That Camus quote, and I read a bit of Camus in college, though I can't place it, but that was the stuff I was drawn to. There's a quote from him that is referenced at some point, man is the only creature that refuses to be what he is. Now, again, I don't know exactly what material that comes from. I'm not going to try to speak on it fluently or with a ton of intelligence, but it suggests to me this idea that we know what we are, but we are in a constant state of trying to pretend we're something else, that we're not an animal. It is representing that kind of split state we are always in as humans. So it just occurs to me that Simon seems to almost point to that as the one byproduct of this whole troubling scenario that maybe actually could be a good thing. People start actually having honest conversations with each other rather than going through the motions with their girlfriend or their boyfriend. They actually express Josh exactly what they're feeling. That paints a little bit more hopeful of a picture than I think we actually get um, yeah. in this film though. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. with one character we do get to that point and it, it kind of leads me to, I had, two spoiler questions I wanted to ask you. So I don't know if um, we should save that maybe for a little bit later or um, touch on a few other things and then jump into them. But yeah, we can stop the review proper here, I think, Josh, and then get to maybe some spoiler questions. So let's do that. She Dies Tomorrow is out now and available to rent on most platforms. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, we'd love to hear from you feedback at filmspotting.net you're worried about catching something something really bad is gonna happen i'm ready i'm ready she did this did this did this So this is, you know, if you've already seen the film, um, you'll you'll maybe be wondering this as well. I had a basic question of whether or not November 25, that's the date that is mentioned by um, Craig, who is Amy's boyfriend. We mm-hmm. see briefly at the start of the film and then later in a flashback. Um, he, as far as we can tell in that flashback, he receives the first message, let's call it, from the pizza delivery guy. <laughs> Comes and also sits kind down. of funny, Josh. <laughs> also well, kind of funny. You know what? There is another like funny kind of like low level funny scene. The Camus quote comes from Jane when she's mm-hmm. visiting her brother, the Christmas Cena character, the dinner party. And that whole yeah. scene is kind of like cringe humor. I'll give you yeah, that. Um, but yeah, so the pizza delivery guy gives Craig um, this, the pizza and the message. Craig walks back to the table where Amy is sitting and mumbles something about November 25th. So my question is... Um, is everyone going to die on November 25th or tomorrow? And tomorrow meaning the day after they receive their revelation. Mm-hmm. I, I I kind of had the impression that Craig was told we're all going to die on November 25 because 
a lot of time passes, right, between Amy and Craig and the pizza guy and then Amy's night alone in her home. So I feel like time has passed and then that night alone in her home is November 24. That was kind of how I read it, but I'm not 100% sure of hmm. that. Did you, yeah. did you have any sense? I have to be honest, Josh. I don't remember the specific mention of a date. Okay. So for me, none of the experience of watching it or thinking about what is happening to them revolved around a specific date. I definitely did think about it in terms of tomorrow being whatever tomorrow would be for that person. But the timeline, even though I see what you're getting at in terms of it could be a fairly wide gap of time because we don't really have those signposts, I did feel like most of the action occurred in a fairly compressed amount of yes. time because once that once that pizza is delivered, we know that at some point Amy and Craig do separate. Right. But that Craig stays there. Yes. And what we don't know is exactly how much time passes between her moving into that house and her leaving the home that she and Craig were visiting together. We we don't really know. But I feel like that might have been a day itself because then later that night, she basically goes back out to that place and isn't the implication that we see his body? Yes. That we see his that bloody he, body? Yes. So he's, he's decided that he... I suppose, can't live with this knowledge and so takes his own life. And actually, doesn't Jane have kind of a similar response as well and that we do see her right. later well, in the this film? Is getting, that's getting to my second spoiler question. Okay. But, I, but I would say, to my mind, I think more time has passed because an early phone call between Amy and Jane, Jane says to her, you know, I think that was a good move to buy the house, basically, um, which to me implies a longer passage of time. And so I but do wonder- couldn't that have been in operation for a while? Possibly, it but to it would seem to be presented with? as like her response to breaking up was to buy a new home, start a new life. Um, and then, you know, as far as Craig, Craig may have returned to that house on November 24, knowing it was his last day. Um, if November 25, but maybe a listener who's seen it, um, you know, no notice more has a theory about the date, but the other thing I was curious about has to do with Craig. I, I agree with you. I think we're meant to assume that he committed suicide, um, in that home. And so it's interesting. Does anyone die naturally in yeah. this movie? So, and by that, I mean, um, you know, some sort of metaphysical cause that they could not have prevented or does everyone die by a human hand because they have this information? So mm -hmm. either their own hand by suicide, right. I think we clearly see that. Or isn't the implication that um, the Chris Messina character and his wife kill Jane? Ooh. Because she's in <laughs> she's in the basement after she gives that talk about fearing about home invasion, and we hear creaking steps, and she looks up to the to the floor above her and says is this how it happens something like that yeah no now that that i don't think is a great story choice that they would yeah. actually do that but that was my impression so so the, my i guess my point about this is if it's only by a human hand that these people are dying and this goes back to your self-deception point yeah then they've been deceived in some way they've right. either been deceived by this light or they're victims of their own mm -hmm. despair delusion their yeah, own despair, despair. Um, yeah. which is kind of, you know, makes the movie for me even more troubling. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't explicitly state what does happen to anyone the next morning. We see the next morning in some cases, mm -hmm. and we see Chris Messina and Katie Aselton playing his wife have a very enigmatic, vague conversation that does suggest 
they did something nefarious the night yes. before. And right? they are expecting to die that morning yeah. because and they I, say about their daughter, should we wake her? Should we wake her? And, th- and then one of them says, no, it's probably best if it happens while she's asleep. Right. Now, I assumed that what they were talking about, what they did, had to do with their daughter, though it does seem like she is still alive in that moment and they didn't do anything to her that they shouldn't have done. But you're right. Maybe they maybe they did do something to Jane. And these are the kind of elusive abstract elements of this film that either really make you want to dive back into it and dissect every frame and try Mm -hmm. to understand it, or it's all a little bit too clever and too confounding for its own good. And I'm, I'm kind of right in the middle on it, honestly, Josh. Yeah, I, I I can see that. I'm, I don't think I need these answers to enjoy the film. Mm -hmm. Um, as I said, these aren't really quibbles. Um, and if I kind of decide on my own answers and follow my own path, which I think the movie does encourage you to do quite a bit. Um, I think I can find a way where it's, it's, as I said, even more disturbing and unnerving um, in a way that's provocative. That, that's yeah. not, that's not a negative experience. It's just, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a movie that really is going to unsettle you intellectually. But again, mm-hmm. going back to where we started, kind of, uh, I don't know if I felt the deep-seated despair that the characters Mm -hmm. did that I think the movie did really want me to feel. Well, if you felt that despair, express it, let it out, tell us how you felt, and give us your theories. Feedback at filmspotting.net. If She Dies Tomorrow doesn't sound like your speed, we have reviews of three more new releases ahead. I Used to Go Here, Boys State, and Beyonce's Black is King. Plus, we'll play a little massacre theater. Stay with us. I'm going back to the south. I'm going back, 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 back. When my roots ain't watered down. Growing, growing like a bob tree of life on fertile ground. Ancestor put me on game. Honk charm on gold chains. With my old shoon in a jail. Drip all on me. Uncle, I just should keep it. Holla, don't I? like such a fast moves or a lot of dead heroes back there get nervous a menacing william talman there as the eponymous hitcher in idolu pino's the hitchhiker next week on the show we kick off our overlooked auteurs marathon with lupino's 1953 film noir and since the hitchhiker is a short and i'm I'm going to guess from that menace, Josh, a not-so-sweet 71 minutes. We are going to pair that with three short films from experimental film director Maya Darren. Yeah, those three shorts, I think around 15 minutes each, so we felt like we could handle that, Adam. The titles of the shorts, Meshes in the Afternoon, At Land, and Ritual in Transfigured Time. They were all made in the 1940s, and we're going to do this marathon chronologically, I think. So that's as far back as we'll go, the 40s, and then we'll jump to Lapino's The Hitchhiker from 53. All those films, those shorts, and The Hitchhiker, they can be found online. We 
started this marathon or were inspired to start it after going through the exercise of thinking about a potential film spotting madness that still very well could happen at some point in the near future that just looks at a bracket of films all directed by women, the 64 greatest films directed by women. And as I looked at so many lists and different titles, these are seven or so plus those shorts of the movies that just came up over and over again that were blind spots for myself and for you, Josh. And we wanted to remedy that with this marathon. So truly overlooked auteurs, maybe some of them overlooked by cinephiles, though I'm not sure that something like Jean Dielman qualifies as overlooked. It does qualify as overlooked by us. So I'm excited to see all of these films, and we hope that you will participate with the marathon, the full lineup, and links to those shorts. They can all be watched online, and you can also see The Hitchhiker. You can get that on demand as well. We will link to those titles or the various platforms that you can get the movies on over at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Again, just click on marathons right there at the top of our page. If you go to filmspotting.net and you can get that full lineup, see what's coming, see what homework you have to do and where you can find the movies. Next week on the show, we will also have an interview with the legendary documentary director, Barbara Koppel. I'm really excited to talk to her for the first time. She's the Oscar-winning director of 1977's Harlan County, USA, and 1991's American Dream. I will say, Josh, that when I was looking at her IMDb page the other day, I was kind of stunned to see that. I think maybe I'd forgotten it, if I ever knew at all, that both those movies won the Oscars. And you think about how many times throughout history the wrong documentaries have won. The, the, the film that all of us point to as the quintessential documentary of that year. If you look back almost without fail, it's not the movie that won the Oscar, but Harlan County, USA and American dream. That would not be the case. I was really happy to see that in those years, the Academy got it right. Koppel also directed Shut Up and Sing. That's about the artists formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. And she made 2015's Miss Sharon Jones. Her latest, Desert One, is about the 1979 mission to rescue American hostages being held in Iran. Adam, I will forever be grateful to Koppel for introducing me to Sharon Jones. She has been in rotation ever since I caught that documentary. So, you know, pass along my thanks when you interview her, okay? I will definitely do that. And I'm excited to talk to her about Desert One, which is a really good film opening next weekend here. August 21st, I think, is when it comes out. Also next week on the show, we will have results from our current film spotting poll. A couple weeks back, we were looking ahead to the August release calendar. We wanted to gauge your interest on a few titles. We asked you simply which of these films you're most excited to see, and the options we gave you included two titles we'll be getting to later in the show, Boys State, and I used to go here, She Dies Tomorrow, which we just reviewed also among the nominees, and we had a few more, Josh. Project Power is another option. This stars Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That is on Netflix this weekend. Tesla is another option. Stars Ethan Hawke as the famed 19th century scientist and inventor. Described as an unconventional biopic. Those are the kinds I usually like. And it's directed by Michael Almereda. That one is on VOD August 21st. Another option for you is The Personal History of David Copperfield from writer-director Armando Iannucci, adapting, of course, the Dickens novel. It stars Dev Patel, Tilda Swinton, Ben Wishaw, and Hugh Laurie, and it comes to VOD August 28th. How about The Sound of Metal? This was originally scheduled to come to VOD this weekend. Now, though... It's off the schedule entirely. One of those frustrating titles that is a bit elusive. It does star Riz Ahmed as a rock drummer who begins to lose his hearing. So those are your options with, of course, 
the other category we will give you. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. We, a few weeks ago, Josh, had a very exciting giveaway, had some new copies, 4K copies of the Blu-ray edition, the 40th anniversary Blu-ray edition of Jaws, and we're back with a giveaway for Judd Apatow's new film, The King of Staten Island, which I did give a recommendation to here on the show. Josh, I don't think you have caught up with it yet. Is that true? I have not. Well, it's, of course, the newest film from Judd Apatow. It stars SNL's Pete Davidson, and it is now available to own on digital and on Blu-ray and DVD August 25th. It's got over two hours of never-before-seen bonus content, including alternate endings and deleted scenes. And I did praise the cast here. I think Davidson's really good in the film, and I really like the supporting players as well. Marissa Tomei as his mom, Bill Burr as his mom's new love interest, and the great Belle Powley, who plays Davidson's character's love interest as well. Steve Buscemi, he only appears in the movie briefly as a fireman, but it's Steve Buscemi, and of course, he's great every moment he's on screen. So we're going to give, I think, five copies of this away, The King of Staten Island, this new Blu-ray that comes out August 25th. All you have to do is email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, subject line, Apatow, and tell us what's your favorite Judd Apatow film. Hmm. That's all you got to do. And we're going to pick five winners at random. So I have to see King of Staten Island so I can finally rank Mm. Apatow, because I've uh, this is the only one of his I haven't seen. I'm trying to think if I have a favorite now, not having sat down and done that exercise. Right, hard hard to go away from you know the early ones, Forty Year Old Virgin or Knocked Up. Knocked but up. I, I'm telling you, Trainwreck, Trainwreck might be up there for me. I it's really, really like that one. Yeah, I do too. And now that you say it, I'm going to be distracted the rest of the show while you talk. I'm going to go to Letterboxd <laughs> and do my Apatow ranking. Shouldn't take too long. Again, that's all you got to do. Email us with Apatow in the subject line and tell us what your favorite Judd Apatow film is. And you could win a copy of The King of Staten Island on Blu-ray. We will announce the winners. We'll read your picks next week on the show. Again, feedback at filmspotting.net. We also wanted to take a moment to thank all of our family members over on Patreon, patreon.com slash filmspotting. One way you can support the show, you get ad-free episodes, you get early downloads, you get a merch discount, live show pre-sales and discounts when live shows are going to be a thing again. And you know what? They're going to be a thing. I don't know when, but whenever we can do that, whenever we can all get together as a film spotting family, it's going to happen. We still have standing reservations in New York at the Bell House. Yes, we and do. At the Downtown Independent in LA. So it's coming at some point. If you're a family member, you can get a pre sale and a discount on those tickets. And of course, monthly bonus episodes. We've had some good stuff, including last month, our July content was a blind spotting review for me of Akira Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai. We said that if you're a family member and you help us get to the goal of 900 patrons, we would do a virtual watch party. And I think we announced it on our last show that we had hit 900. We were over it, maybe like 906 or something, Josh. Mm -hmm. So we thought it was smooth sailing. And then the first of the month hit. Mm -hmm. And as does happen with Patreon, for various reasons, some patrons say, you know what? Not ready to be on board for another month. I'm going to rescind my donation. This happens to all people, all brands, all podcasts, whatever you want to say, who are on I, I Patreon. It, I, let's be honest. I think it happens when you express a particularly idiotic opinion. We just, the patrons just fall away. 
That's so, what, every month. Ranking, ranking Seven Samurai is Kurosawa's eighth best film <laughs> that was, is what cost us those patrons. That might have been it. I'll accept it. I'll accept that, Josh. So we actually dipped. We dipped below. We went to like 856 or 857 come August 1st. But you know what? Because of our listeners, we're back up over 900 again. And that means we are going to have the virtual watch party. To clarify something or to correct something, a while back we said that we were going to do this virtual watch party on August 21st. We told our family members, save the date. We have had to change that. And the new date is going to be Saturday, September 19th. And we're excited that it's a Saturday because that will allow us to start earlier, maybe as early as sort of four o'clock central time, which means we know we've got some family members in the UK and other areas that are not the United States or our time zone, Josh. And we'd love to accommodate them as well and get everybody involved. We don't want anyone to feel left out, especially family members. No. And we think between you, me, and producer Sam Van Halgren that we have settled on the three titles that we are going to give our family members to vote on. In fact, by the time you hear this, family members may have already had the opportunity to vote, share their opinion on which film we should watch as part of this virtual party with our family members. But it may also be in flux. We can't seem to just totally focus in. Just when we think we've got three great titles, you start thinking about, well, are they on the right streaming platforms? How are people going to watch them? Are they going to have to rent it? Are they going to have to put in a DVD? A lot of variables here at play, Josh, but we think we're zeroing in. It's been a process. We're almost there. Yeah. Patreon.com slash film spotting. If you want to get all of those film spotting family benefits, and if you want to be part of that virtual watch party on Saturday, September 19th. We wanted to give a quick plug to our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. This week, they have part two of their Reichert Way pairing. So they're looking at Kelly Reichert's new First Cow alongside 2010's Meek's Cutoff. That means First Cow is the discussion this week. Features not only your regular hosts, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky, but Alyssa Wilkinson of Vox has joined them for this pairing. So that's very exciting. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday. You can find it wherever you get your podcast and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. Of course, if you, Josh, have not had your fix of Kelly Reichert after listening to that pairing from The Next Picture Show, you can go back to our last show if you missed it, my interview, our interview with Kelly Reichert, her second time here on Film Spotting, a fun discussion talking about First Cow. That's available wherever you get your podcasts or you can go to filmspotting.net and click on interviews. With all that business taken care of, let's move on to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few shows ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. What have you got there? Uh, oh, 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 you found cheese? And not just any cheese, Tome de Chevre de Pay! That would go beautifully with my mushroom! And... Uh, and, 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 oh, this rosemary, this rosemary, uh, with, uh, maybe, maybe with a few drops from the sweet crab. Well, throw it on the pile, I guess, and then we'll, you know. We don't want to throw this in with the garbage. This is special. But we're supposed to return to the colony before sundown, or, you know, dad's gonna... Emil, there are possibilities unexplored here. We, we gotta cook this. Now, exactly how we cook. This is the real question. Ooh, yeah. That was Patton Oswalt's Remy and Peter Sohn as Emil in 2007's Ratatouille, written by Jan Pinkava, Jim Capobianco, and Brad Bird, and directed, of course, by Bird. 
along with that massacre, we had a review of the best film of the year so far, though Kelly Reichert does just want us to proclaim it the best film of the year. And you know what, Josh? It might end up being that first cow. And as I mentioned, we had that interview with Kelly Reichert. Why that scene then from Ratatouille? Well, our listeners did get the connections. James Ward in Carbondale, Illinois, says, I almost immediately recognize the dialogue I've heard dozens of times watching Brad Bird's masterpiece Ratatouille. Realizing the similarities between Remy and Cookie and First Cow put a smile on my face. Both characters share not just a passion for cooking, but a reverence for cooking, and both characters are misunderstood by the people around them. Nicely done, James. Here's Bruce Bachelor Glider from Milford, Ohio. It seemed fairly easy to recognize the culinary art of Remy the Rat in Ratatouille and compare it to the pioneer gusto of oily cakes in First Cow. It was a first-class production all the way around, and Josh nailed the persnickety precision of the talkative rodent. Why, thank you. It still makes me laugh when I think of the scene in First Cow when Cookie gives the pastry that extra touch of a daub of honey and shaved cinnamon before handing it over in his grimy hand. I'd still prefer bakery from an itinerant cook to food served by a team of rats, rats not wearing face masks. (laughs) That is one of those touches I very vividly remember from First Cow and one of those just quick Asides almost where you recognize what our previous listener, James, had mentioned, that passion, that true passion for cooking, that it's not just a product in order to make it the best artistic creation he can. No matter how grimy and dirty his hands are, he's going to add that touch of honey and cinnamon. Yeah, and it gives you those tactile sensory details that Reichardt is always so good at emphasizing. And here's Professor Sam Meester. He's at Millican University. That's just kind of down the road from us, Josh, in Decatur. He says, one, gourmet delights from unlikely sources, and I suppose clandestine efforts to bring those delights to the hungry, high-risk High reward. Well said, Professor. I believe Ratatouille remains at or near the top of Michael Phillips' list of the Pixar films, and Michael weighed in on your recent Spielberg Decade rankings, despite being the most wrong about Raiders of the Lost Ark as any critic has been (laughs) ever. Number three. Kelly Reichert in the recent wave of recognition for outstanding female filmmakers ties into... Patton Oswalt, in his recent work on the fantastic HBO doc, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, based on his wife, Michelle McNamara's excellent true crime book and superbly directed by Liz Garbus and a host of other talented women. Women have been crushing it lately, making some of the finest films of the past five years. It says here in parentheses, raw, Josh. Indeed. Yeah, Reichert has been at the forefront. Simultaneously, the rising interest in true crime and the recognition of how many women make up that fan base has me wondering if and when Reichert, notably fixated on the serial killer-laden Pacific Northwest, will take on a serial killer picture. I'd love to see that. Mm. Maybe that's hoping too much, but a true crime-slash-feminist cinema fanboy can dream. Yeah, that does sound promising. So, Josh, we did get a lot of entries. It must have been your persnickety precision. I love that. As Patton Oswalt's Remy, people knew it. People love Pixar and Ratatouille. A lot of entries, very brimming film spotting hat, not unlike the one Cookie wears in First Cow. It's a little dirty, but I want you to reach in and pick out this week's winner. And the winner is Jeff Boyle from Pittsburgh. Congratulations, Jeff. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t shirt. I think your dialogue is beautiful. I really do. I love it. Then why the hell don't you just stand still and say it instead of wandering all over the stage? You're supposed to be looking for your soul, not an ashtray. Well, as we move on to this edition of Massacre Theater, we're going to see if I can bring the energy, Josh. I'm not sure (laughs) I can match anything like what you did a few weeks back. I certainly can't match the emotion of this performer, but Mm. I'm going to do what I can. 
it's a different sort of high energy that, that yeah. you gotta you gotta go for here. And me, I, I've got a I've got a pretty much drain energy away, I think. That's so true. We'll, we'll That's see, true. We'll see how so this goes. We're gonna hopefully see your range mm-hmm. here, Josh. Yes, exactly. Different kind of different kind of precision you have to bring to this performance. Now we are, as we usually do, taking out one reference of a name so it doesn't make it too easy. And we are also going to change something that would be really a dead giveaway for anyone who is familiar with this film, really whether you've seen it or not. There's a reference twice to something. We'll just say a phenomenon. And we have have inserted something different that will, well, it'll make it hit a little more close to home for the two of us, Josh. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Okay. I started off. You're going to give me the action. And action. Not a word. You didn't say one word about this to me. Don't you think you owe me that? Don't you think that you might respect me enough to at least consider what I'd have to say? I didn't want you worrying about it. Well, I'm worried. How are you paying for all that? I got a home improvement loan from the bank. How could you do that without talking to me? You know the expenses we have coming up. You want to waste money on a stupid podcast? I'm doing, I'm doing it for us. I know you don't understand. You're right. I don't understand. I don't understand half the stuff you've been doing lately. I don't understand you putting Red Out back. I don't understand you staying up all night in that stupid podcast studio. You don't come to bed half the time. You leave. You don't tell me where you're going. Explain that to me. Please. Tell me something that helps me understand why you're being like this. There's nothing to explain. And... And (laughs) Scene. Well, I don't. I don't remember Marlon Brando with with the nuts in the side of his mouth being um, in this film. Josh, I think I'm going to regret that. This is the first time I fear like somehow that actor might hear what we've done. Oh yeah, and come after me. I think you deserve it. If you know what film we just massacred, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Meanwhile, the hysteria you brought. You were already hysterical when you started. I was. And you You're just, right. You You're just right. went higher. <laughs> I kind of had nowhere to go. I don't have the training <laughs> that this actress does. If you know it, again, tell us the movie's title along with your name and location. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 26th. No second takes on Massacre Theater. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Guess where I am? Where? In Carbondale. Welcome back, right? David Kirkpatrick brought me down to do a reading. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Kate was in my very first class ever as a professor. How's your book doing? Not as good as I would have hoped. What would you think about teaching here? Teaching here? It would be nice to have you here again, Kate. That's Jermaine Clement and Gillian Jacobs in the trailer for I Used to Go Here from Chicago director Chris Ray. Jacobs stars as a 30-something writer whose new book has just been published to little fanfare. Clement is the former professor who invites her to speak at her alma mater, which is actually set at Southern Illinois in Carbondale, but Mm -hmm. for purposes of the film is called Illinois University. Now, you saw this and I thought, well, maybe I should see it too. I didn't have quite the same reaction as you, which is why I'm going to let you run with this, Josh, because you can recommend I used to go here. 
yeah, I, I had fun with this film. It, it was, you know, we kind of put it on and started smiling pretty soon and just kind of kept smiling throughout the whole thing. I think maybe it's part of the the local atmosphere that you referenced. Had to love seeing, you know, I think um, a couple of Revolution Brewery beers mm-hmm. <laughs> there that characters are drinking. And I have to say, as someone who also did not get a book tour... <laughs> But right. um, but has done a lot of book talks. They nail some details here, sure. and and some of them at the expense of the author. I love when she walks up and sees the poster board of you know her picture before her talk on campus, and a kid walks by and goes, "Hey, yeah, you're, you're wearing, wearing the same, the same blazer." blazer. <laughs> Like, that that I could relate to. Totally have been there. So um, so yeah, there's a lot of knowing details in this that I think Chris Ray includes that make it um, you know a really pleasurable experience. And I think it has fun noodling around in that space um, as as Kate returns to college, meets a bunch of creative writing students, and um, recalls that idealism she had at that age. Right as as not only as a writer but just as a person, um, and kind of wants to reclaim some of that, but also realizes the realities of adulthood that she's living with. And so the movie just nicely sits in that space. Uh, I think it's, there are, it never goes over into farce, even though it flirts with it, with like a, a break in sequence. I think there's some nice editing work here that undercuts um, some of those moments and doesn't let them drag on too long, but instead cuts the farcical elements and gets to something that's a little more, um, a little more knowing and relationship based with these characters. And so it kind of makes a nice move from anxiety to acceptance for a lot of the characters that is well handled. And I enjoyed watching this character just kind of get to that place, feeling a little bit more secure, just a little bit more secure about where she is as a 30 something in the world compared to these, these college students that she meets. But, but yeah, what I did see on letterboxd, uh, you weren't as enthused. So was, was there no. one element that held you back or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's two things for me. One is that despite the blazer line, which may be the most knowing detail the film gets right, there were a lot of scenarios I thought the movie understood or pulled from real life that people in similar situations have experienced. But I'm not sure that overall I really bought any of the other details. Like I'm not Hmm. I'm not convinced by any of the other interactions or the character relationships in the film. I did not buy into any of them. And also, I think a big part of it is the other thing that didn't work for me, Josh. You said it didn't cross over into farce. Maybe we have different gauges on that spectrum. For me, it always went for the joke, and the jokes almost never landed. And in fact, they were always exactly the joke I think any of us could have predicted it was going for. There was never a joke that surprised me in the film. And and honestly, when I think about when I think about I used to go here, what I will reflect on, the moment I like, maybe the the only moment in the film that I really thought was kind of a, a knowing detail was near the end, not a spoiler here at all, there's an interaction with a character, and those are some of the scenarios that I didn't think the humor really worked. But there's an interaction where you realize that that person, all that character wanted was a little bit of companionship and to feel necessary. Yeah. That character wanted to feel needed. And that was finally a moment for me where, where something in the film really connected. It was only too bad that it was with about seven minutes left. So I know exactly who you're talking about. It's the bed and breakfast hostess, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that that's, I think... 
that's an example where I was talking about the transition that a lot of these, I found a lot of these characters made from antagonism or anxiety to this sort of acceptance. And you're right. It's exactly because this is this gesture, which we won't spoil, is all she really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And the movie brings both her and Kate to that point. I think there's something similar. We get to meet one of the college students, um, his mom who lives nearby on campus. And there's something, there's farce in the sequences with that character. But I think that also leads towards something more relationally based. So, so those, those relationships did work for me. And I see what you're saying about the humor. Um, you know, there's nothing that entirely took me by surprise, but I do think that that's why those hard cuts in a couple of the instances, like the break in scene, just when it's kind of like ratcheting up to where we expect some big sort of, um, confrontation to take place. It cuts away from that and yeah. and jumps ahead so that it doesn't deliver kind of that joke we might expect and and gives us something a little bit different. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I struggled with I used to go here, but Josh had a good experience with it and plenty of other critics have. If you look at Rotten Tomatoes, I think it was in the 80s as far as percent of positive reviews. So give it a shot. If you haven't seen it already, it is currently available to rent on most platforms. I will skip the part where I brag for three minutes about how great and cool I am. Seeing as we are all qualified young men of skill and character. People like that stuff. People like that stuff a lot. That's from the trailer for the new documentary, Boys State. It's directed by Jesse Moss and Amanda McBain, and it documents the annual Texas Boys State program. This is when a thousand teen boys from around the state descend on Austin to learn about American democracy by building their own representative government. Boys State had its debut back in January at Sundance, did well there, won the grand jury prize, and I believe Adam has also won your approval, right? Yes. Yeah. Big fan of Boys State. And maybe in this way only, it connects back to our initial review of She Dies Tomorrow and that that's a movie that's very much open to interpretation and your personal experience with it. And I think Boys State can provoke a similar reaction. And why I say that is I was just Googling it today to look up some detail and I saw those kind of three top boxes that pop up on Google and they were reviews of Boys State. And one of them was from the San Francisco Chronicle. And the headline was, Boys State is a good documentary that makes you despair for humanity. So I stopped there. I stopped there because I I still hadn't gotten all my thoughts down yet. And I didn't want to really dive into it at that point. But I'm not shocked at that takeaway. And of course, I do want to say it's just a headline. And probably the column or the review itself gets into a lot more nuance than that suggests. But there is definitely plenty about Boy State that made me shake my head or made me concerned about the future. Now, I will say, granted, this is Texas and is covered multiple times in the movie that most of these kids come from a very conservative background. But Josh, every political debate in this film, and I say debate in quotes because they don't really ever get in fully to the substance of it. It's about abortion and guns. And that's pretty much it. You get a little immigration thrown in. But these really difficult, really nuanced, philosophical, political discussions all have sort of the the rhetorical depth of what you would expect from a bunch of 17-year-old boys. And forgetting my own or setting aside my own political disagreement with some of those views, I was mostly just aware of the brilliance of so many of these kids, especially the kids that the filmmakers choose to follow, but also just 
the ignorance of youth, <laughs> the brashness of these 17-year-old boys, the certainty of their convictions. They're so young, and there's so much at that age. I remember what it was like very vividly being one of these idiot 17-year-old boys. <laughs> it might have extended into my 18s or beyond, Josh, and you just don't know enough about life or about yourself to have that kind of certainty. And all I could imagine was even two years removed from this, these boys watching themselves on screen hmm. and shaking their own heads, right? It's not even going to be five or 10 years. They're 17. Just a couple of years from now, they're going to look back and see their own immaturity. But I, I say all that because that that notion, at least expressed by that headline, that you watch this good documentary in despair for humanity, I had the opposite reaction. I came through this movie at the end really quite hopeful. And the problem is I can't express to you why that is without spoiling where the movie goes and what happens to some of these characters specifically and what the, what the results are. And results is an appropriate word here because the biggest complaint you hear a lot of people lob at the media covering politics and covering elections is that they're only interested in the horse race, right? It's just about the polls, the gaffes, who's winning, mm -hmm. who's losing. It's never really about the politics. It's never about the debates, the topics, the platform, the positions themselves. And when you watch Boy State, you realize that it's not really about debating complex issues and finding common ground. The stakes are you have two parties and three big elected positions, including the highest office governor. And the film is about which party is going to win. It's really not about democracy, except in the form of how we elect officials to govern effectively or not. So Boy State, the experience is perfectly setting these kids up for what American democracy is. It's about winning and losing. It's about your party's success and public service and what's right can be damned. And Boy State the movie, as a chronicle of that experience, is accurate then in that it's about winning and losing. And it's almost as if Moss and McBain, the directors, realized they needed to make it seem a little more consequential than it is and not just be about the horse race because near the end of the film, we get a montage. I think it comes really right before the big election results are revealed that show some of the kids they're following having thoughtful interactions with people that they disagree with and listening really closely. But it is a montage. We get voiceover that kind of neatly sums all this up and it, it feels a little bit obligatory. So that was something I was wrestling with where I wanted it to actually showcase a little bit more of the thoughtful conversation and listening. But I'm not sure that actually took place at Boy State. And Likewise, I'm not sure that actually takes place in any part of our American democracy at the moment. So the filmmakers probably accomplished exactly what they ultimately set out to do. I was really impressed by all four kids they follow. There's one, Stephen Garza, who I think is probably, for most viewers, going to be the star of the movie. And I think we could have a fun discussion about why that is, his story and the filmmakers and what their feelings towards him are. But there was another kid named Robert in the movie who's the most Texas of any of the kids we see, you know, in terms of his accent and his demeanor. And he drives the pickup truck in a lot of ways reflects kind of a stereotype of a Texas high school kid. And at first, he really wows you with his thoughtfulness and intelligence. And then he completely disappointed me. And then he won me back with his self-awareness and his genuine acknowledgement of the compromises that politics requires. So there's a lot of 
really nice individual journeys that do play out over the course of this movie that do coalesce into something that I think is pretty profound. And I watched it with Holden and Sophie, my son Holden, who, as you know, just went off to college and wants to be a history and poli sci major and loves all of this stuff and is fascinated by elections in particular. He watched it and was just giddy the whole time, in addition to also feeling so disappointed that he didn't have something like this that he could have participated in. This would have been the greatest week of his life had he been able to go to Boys State. Meanwhile, my daughter Sophie, she can't wait for Girls State. <laughs> so it sounds like um, there is a more nuanced portrayal of these kids. Absolutely. At least, at least eventually. Okay, because when you were initially describing it, and I'm kind of thinking, well, yeah, then I guess what is what is the point if it's almost a nihilistic depiction of, no, of these kids? That's where the kids, hopefulness it, comes in. But it does it does bring around to a little broader look at their lives and their backgrounds, so, yeah. which, yeah, makes it sound more intriguing to me, for sure. Yeah, highly recommended. It's currently playing exclusively on Apple+. Plus. Finally, Josh, Beyonce's Black is King. You're our resident Beyonce expert here on Film Spotting. <laughs> you always see oh these when they come out. You always have something to say. It's another visual album in the tradition of Lemonade, which you were very fond of from a few years back. This one uses last year's Lion King remake as inspiration, which Beyonce provided the music for. It's currently on Disney Plus. Should all of us with Disney Plus subscriptions seek it out? Well, uh, first of all, I am going to point you to a couple of Beyonce experts, of which I am not, before I'm done here. So you can uh, do a, do some reading and uh, get maybe uh, a better opinion on the film. I will just say that, yeah, as a fan of Lemonade, as a fan of um, Homecoming, the concert documentary, which is a different aesthetic style, of course, I, I was looking forward to this and it didn't disappoint. I mean, just... You start with the talent on display in terms of, you know, the musicianship, um, a performer, but even, you know, as credited as a director on here, the aesthetic that this production brings to you is lush, it's gorgeous, it's influenced by traditional African fashion, and also, this time, intriguingly, Afrofuturism. So you get all that mingling around, um, you get these vibrant colors, just sort of a celestial scope to this thing um, that is it washes over you and it's it's a great experience now i will say um, there are probably three powerful forces at work here. One you mentioned, uh, Disney's The Lion King, because Beyonce did. She was part of that remake and provided the songs for it. And that's the songs you hear here, which are fantastic. But then you also have this thread of African ancestralism going through Black is King. And then, you, of course, you have Beyonce herself, who is her own force, her own celestial force of nature. And for me, all of those elements didn't quite convincingly coalesce. If you listen to her last album, The Lion King, The Gift, I think that had a similar problem because there were snippets of dialogue from the movie between songs, and it was a little bit jarring. And I think that still does exist in this film when taken as a whole. But independently, the sequences, the individual sequences on their own um, are just you know stunning to watch and do work really well. Well, and I think in terms of Beyonce being a performer, something like Mood Forever, that sequence, um, you know, it, it's hard to imagine her ever topping something like that. So I do want to point to a few people who, um, you know, a lot of the references in the film probably 
made more sense for them. And they've written about this um, and maybe the disconnect that I experienced, they did not have. And if you want to watch this and kind of trace some of those references, track down these articles. So one is by a friend of the show. She's been on a number of times, Angelica Jade Bastian for Vulture. She basically looked at nine images from Beyonce's career leading up to Black is King that Angelica says, sort of define her. So that's fascinating. Then over at Polygon, Jelani Turner-Williams did a deep dive into the imagery of Black is King specifically. So again, connecting some of the dots there um, that I might have missed. And then I had the pleasure of editing a piece over at Think Christian by Joylanda Jameson, because there are also all sorts of biblical allusions going on in Black is King. So Joylanda traced some of those and talked about the biblical resonance, especially as it applies to the Lion King narrative that is at play here. So so this is a lot. Um, it's hugely entertaining and also deeply meaningful. Um, depending on uh, your background, you might have to do some digging to get at some of that meaning, but I would definitely recommend it. I got my cup of two to heavens. Another night I won't remember. I promise this my move forever. I promise this my move forever, ever. Black is King, again, can be seen on Disney+. And if you have seen that visual album or Boy State, I used to go hear any of the films we talked about on this week's show. We would always love to get your feedback. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at Larson on Film. Josh, that is our show. That is our show. And I should say, I'll link to those three articles as well in the show notes uh, if you want to go ahead and find those. Also on the Film Spotting website, you can find our archives over at filmspotting.net. That's where reviews, interviews, and top fives are. They go back to 2005. And on the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking which August 2020 release you're most interested in seeing. If you want to order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Boys State, one of the films out on digital release this weekend, as I mentioned, over at Apple Plus and Project Power is a new film available on Netflix. Next week on the show, we're going to talk to Barbara Koppel, legendary documentary filmmaker about her new film, Desert One, and our overlooked auteurs marathon begins. We're going to talk about the short films of Maya Darren and Ida Lupino's film noir, the Hitchhiker, do recommend if you're curious about those films and curious about that marathon to go to filmspotting.net slash marathons and check out the whole lineup. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.